Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings. And we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Atlanta pastor Andy Stanley once said, love for God is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by love for others who are nothing like you and who may not even like you. To be totally honest, I bristled the first time I heard that quote about 10 years ago. No, no, no. Love for God is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by how I obey God's commands, I thought to myself. Andy went on to talk about some of Jesus' final words in chapter 15 of John's account of Jesus' life. It was on the night before he would die on the cross. And Jesus told his followers, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. As soon as Andy read that verse, I felt vindicated. I knew I was right. Loving God is about following his commands. Jesus says so right there. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. But what are his commands? As I'm sure the disciples did when Jesus first said it, I waited on the edge of my seat for the long list of commands to be enumerated. But in the next verse, Jesus simply says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. That is the command of Jesus we are to follow in order to demonstrate our love for him, to remain in his love. That is the call of every Christian, everywhere and for all time. If I had to boil down all of Jesus' teaching to one sentence, that would be it. Love others the way Jesus has loved us. You may remember the story of Jesus being asked what is most important in the world by the religious leaders of the day. He responds in very much the same way by saying what has become known as the greatest commandment. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. But we love God when we love others. We obey God when we love our neighbor. And we do the will of God when we love those around us. It's that simple. It's not easy. I'm not up here telling you that it's easy. But it's simple. And this simple teaching undergirds everything that Jesus teaches throughout his time here on earth. As we've been walking through our year in the life of Jesus over the last few months, we've seen this over and over again. Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom, God's kingdom, and it's, it's radically different from anything the world has ever seen because it is based on sacrificial love. God's sacrificial love for us and our sacrificial love for each other. Two weeks ago, we kicked off our latest teaching series inside of the year in the life of Jesus called Sermon on the Mount. And this series walks through Jesus' longest and most important teaching. And again, everything he says is built on the foundation of sacrificial love. 
this section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're actually going to look at this morning is one section, but it contains six different subjects, which seems like a lot. And again, until you realize they're all about reorienting society around sacrificial love for one another. Now, these teachings, these six teachings, they're also held in common by the way that Jesus frames them. Because you see, in each of them, he begins with some version of, you have heard it said, and then ends with some version of, but I tell you. You may have heard it said this way, that this was right, but I'm actually telling you that this is right. Now, Jesus is making six different contrasts here regarding six major issues facing the world during that time. Now, it's probably not uh, beyond any of your imaginations that the six issues facing the world at that time are actually incredibly prevalent for the issues facing us today. And this contrast that Jesus makes about commonly held beliefs with the way of Jesus is something that I believe we desperately, desperately need to hear. Because back then, just like today, many of these commonly held beliefs that are contradictory to the way of Jesus actually came from a misunderstanding of the scripture, specifically the Jewish law in the Old Testament. I love the way Restore's very own Christopher Sims says it. Within this passage, we see Jesus redefining what it means to follow the will of God. When bogged down by legalism and literal observances of the Jewish law, the mission is no longer love. It is just avoidance of sin. Jesus restores this vision of hope and love for his people by focusing on the positive purposes for self-sacrificing love and how God is glorified through relationship with him and others. Or to put it another way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is correcting erroneous biblical interpretations that religious people have believed for generations. If he was here on earth today, I wonder what long-held biblical interpretations he would be correcting. I have some ideas, but that's a sermon for a different day. But if this whole Sermon on the Mount section that we're about to tackle sounds like it's going to be a little bit pot-stirring, it absolutely is. Just get ready. Because in fact, Jesus anticipates the pushback that he gets when he knows he's going to say some of these things. So he actually starts off by saying this, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which are the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Jesus knows he's about to hear this angry chorus of, don't listen to this crazy radical. He doesn't even believe the scriptures are true. Jesus is saying, no, 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 I believe they're absolutely true. I just know that you all have had such terrible interpretations of them that you have completely missed God's purpose. I haven't come to abolish these scriptures. I've just come to help you understand them better. And with that introduction, Jesus dives in. So we're going to work through the first of these five, the first of these six teachings, the first five, excuse me, of these six teachings at a pretty high level because we're going to spend quite a bit of time on the last one, the most radical teaching of all, because I believe it's the one we most often ignore and yet it's the one we most desperately need right now. So the first thing Jesus addresses is anger. Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard it said... To people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, idiot, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I wish I could have been there when Jesus said idiot. I feel like that would have been a great moment. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, 
And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. I remember uh, being told about these verses as a kid and being told that they meant if I ever call someone a fool, I will go to hell. Talk about bad Bible interpretation. But I didn't let it phase me. I just called them every other name that I could think of and not fool and kind of avoided that whole situation. I thought I was covered. I know it sounds funny, but that's basically what people were doing in that culture too. They had been taught that as long as you avoided murdering someone, you could be as angry and as mean as you'd like to be. Jesus is saying it's not just about the action of murder, it's the condition of the heart. Obviously, killing someone is wrong, but so is hating someone. So is being mean to someone. Jesus says that it's such a big deal that he would actually us reconcile with that person. He would rather us do that than worship him. He would rather us go reconcile first and then come to worship. New Testament scholar Grant Osborne says, reconciliation in the kingdom community is so important that it has priority over worship. Because, like we talked about at the beginning, When we love God, when we love each other. That's the foundational understanding of this Christian life. Next, Jesus talks about lust. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus here is saying that adultery is not the main issue. Lust actually is. Because lust objectifies another human and thus degrades the image of God in them. This is yet another reason why pornography is such a horrific thing. It degrades people. Now, Jesus uses hyperbole, right, to talk about cutting off body parts or gouging out eyes in order to avoid lust, but but don't miss his main point inside of the hyperbole. He's saying that lust is a destructive force that, if left unchecked, will run rampant in our lives and cause havoc in our communities. Next, Jesus talks about divorce, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim. Remember that word, victim. The victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this one seems a little bit out of place at first, right? Because we can easily see how one person can use hate and lust to hurt someone else. But in our culture, divorce is often something that is mutually agreed upon, right? It's not necessarily one person hurting another. It's two people maybe hurting themselves, hurting kids, but just making this decision to separate. This is why we have to understand what divorce looked like in this first century context and culture that Jesus was speaking to. In that patriarchal culture, a society where women were essentially property, divorce was often a death sentence for the wife. That's why Jesus calls her a victim of divorce. Divorced women were considered damaged goods and many had to resort to begging or prostitution just to eat. Notice it doesn't say anyone who gets divorced. It says anyone who divorces his wife. This is a command specifically for the men in this context who wielded all the power in relationships. Again, this is about how we treat each other. 
especially those who are the most vulnerable among us, married women in this society. Next, Jesus tackles oaths. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Again, when I was little, I was told that this passage meant I could never say, I swear, right? Like you would be kind of being interrogated by your parents for something that they thought that you did. And you'd be like, I didn't do it. I swear, I swear. I was taught like, you cannot say that. Do not say, I swear. Jesus specifically forbids it. But it's amazing to me that how we've not only so often missed the point of Jesus's words, we have actually done the opposite of what he's teaching inside of them. Jesus doesn't care if we say, I swear or not. He cares if we tell the truth because lying hurts people. The point is not that oaths or promises are inherently wrong. The point is that we shouldn't have to use them because everything that comes out of our mouths should be trustworthy and truthful, whether it has an I swear attached to it or not. Christians should be on the side of truth. This is so vitally important in a society where powerful people claim that anything they don't like is fake. Think about it like this. How can we expect people to believe us when we tell them about Jesus if we don't tell the truth about other stuff? They would just assume we're lying about that too. We can't expect them to believe us. We must be truth tellers, seekers of truth. Next on the list is retaliation. This is actually the last one before we focus on that really radical final subject. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat to them as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So what Jesus is talking about here are these things called laws of retaliation from the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. And they primarily concern legal proceedings between people. So for example, if person A hurts person B, the Jewish law ensured that person A would be punished in the same way they hurt person B. So if they slapped person B on the right cheek, then person B would get to slap person A on the right cheek as well. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, no more, no less. So the second part of Jesus' statement even encourages us to go the extra mile for people who have wronged us. So Jesus is saying, you've heard it said that the punishment should fit the crime, but I tell you, do not retaliate when you are wronged. Do not return violence for violence, but instead repay evil with good. It's worth pointing out that these commands do not preclude us from fighting for justice. In fact, I think that they encourage us to do so. They encourage nonviolent resistance in the vein of Martin Luther King Jr., who we're going to talk more about in just a moment. And that brings us to the final subject of Jesus, what he tackles in this section, love for enemies. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good 
and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? As I said a moment ago, Jesus saves the most radical instruction for last. Enemy love is a revolutionary concept. It was revolutionary in the first century. It's obviously still revolutionary today. And it was a central part of a revolution that took place back in the 1950s and 60s right here in America. You see, on January 15th, 1929, in Atlanta, Georgia, Martin Luther King Jr. was born. In 1944, he began his freshman year at Morehouse College. He would later graduate from Morehouse and then from Crozier Theological Seminary as the valedictorian. Then in 1954, he becomes the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And then in June of 1955, he receives his doctorate from Boston University. Later that same year, 1955, on a city bus in Montgomery, a black woman named Rosa Parks is arrested for refusing to give her seat up to a white man. A few days later, Dr. King forms the Montgomery Improvement Association and organizes the Montgomery bus boycott. In the month that follows, Dr. King is put on the FBI watch list, called a domestic terrorist. He receives numerous death threats and his home is bombed. The night of that bombing, Dr. King stood in front of his smoldering home and urged the angry crowd that had gathered outside on behalf of Dr. King to continue practicing nonviolence. Incredible. A couple of years later, on November 17th, 1957, Martin Luther King Jr. stood in the pulpit of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and delivered a sermon entitled, Love Your Enemies. I want to read to you how it starts. He says, I want to turn your attention to this subject, loving your enemies. It's so basic to me because it is a part of my basic philosophical and theological orientation. The whole idea of love, the whole philosophy of love. In the fifth chapter of the gospel as recorded by St. Matthew, we read these very arresting words flowing from the lips of our Lord and master. Ye have heard it that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. Certainly these are great words, words lifted to cosmic proportions, and over the centuries many persons have argued that this is an extremely difficult command. Many would go as far as to say that it just isn't possible to move out into the actual practical of this glorious command. They would go on to say that this is just additional proof that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. So the arguments abound. But far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus has become the practical realist. The words of this text glitter in our eyes with a new urgency. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization. Love even for enemies. I believe that last line with my whole soul. Love will save our world. Yes, even love 
maybe even especially love for our enemies. Because by any measure, y'all, our, our world is fractured. We're divided by political ideology, by ethnicity, by religion, by class, so many other things. Social media and the internet have made it even easier to segregate ourselves. Because you see, we now know from the moment we encounter someone's online presence exactly how they feel about a myriad of things. We then take their opinions, right? We match them up against our own, and we decide if they are friend or foe, if they are an ally or they are an enemy. To put it another way, we decide if they're our people or they're those people. We usually base membership in the our people group based on shared interests, similar worldviews, or common experiences. Think about it. Our people usually think like us, believe like us, look like us, talk like us, worship like us, and vote like us. This is especially true in the church. Most Western churches are homogenous in basically every way, and according to the latest research, the vast majority of church members don't want that to change. But it's only natural, right? We embrace our people, and we push away those people. But Jesus talks significantly more about how we treat those people than how we treat our people. In fact, we just heard Jesus say that our faith is actually measured not by how we love our people, but by how we love our enemies. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Now, it's important, again, to point out that Jesus doesn't say, tolerate your enemies. He doesn't say, be nice to your enemies. He calls us to love our enemies. If you've been around church for a while, you may know that the New Testament was written in the language of Greek, Koine Greek, kind of ancient Greek. And if you've been around for a long time, you may know that in the Greek language, there are actually four different words for love. We translate them all the same way, love. But, but knowing which one is used in any given context can really help us better understand exactly what kind of love is going on in that verse. Specifically here, what kind of love Jesus is asking us to use when we encounter our enemies. So here's the first one. It's called phileo. And you may recognize that word, right? It's kind of a sibling kind of love, a, a friendship. It's where we get the words Philadelphia, right? Which means city of brotherly love. So that's the first one, phileo. The second one is storge. This is a love that comes naturally. It's a love that you can't help. It's like how you love your favorite food or your favorite sports team. You just, you just love it, right? It just, it flows out. The third one is eros. It's where we get the word erotic. This love is based on attraction. It can often be a, a fleeting and misleading kind of love, comes and goes. And then lastly, we have agape. This is the deepest and noblest kind of love. It's self-sacrificing, completely devoted to the object of the love, regardless of if the object reciprocates it or not. You see, this love keeps on loving even when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, or unworthy. This is unconditional love. Guess which word Jesus uses here? Agape. We are called to sacrificially and unconditionally love our enemies. In the decade after Martin Luther King Jr. gave that sermon about loving our enemies, his enemies threatened him, 
falsely accused him, attacked him, arrested him, and eventually they killed him. If anyone had the right to hate their enemies, it was Dr. King. Probably second only to the person who first said these words, Jesus Christ. You see, for Jesus, after his enemies had arrested him, lied about him, beaten him, and hung him up on a cross to die, do you know what he said? Luke 23 records it. When they came to the place called Calvary, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. See, we don't get to decide who we love. We don't get to decide how we love them. Jesus decided that. He decided it 2,000 years ago on a hillside called Calvary. Jesus decided that every single person is worthy of love. Not just any kind of love either. Sacrificial love, agape love. He decided for him that every single person on this planet is worth dying for. And here's what I want us to see this morning. We look at the people who murdered Jesus on that cross and we say without hesitation that they were his enemies, but Jesus never saw them that way. To Jesus, they were God's children. Maybe a little bit lost like the prodigal son or gone astray like a lost sheep, but they were children nonetheless. Jesus told us to love our enemies because he knew you can't love someone for very long without them changing from your enemy to your friend, no matter how many differences you may have. He wanted us to see that for the Christian, the entire world is our people. The entire world is deserving of love. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Every single person in this world, every single person you encounter has been made in the image of God. And every one of them deserves love. Jesus ends this section of the Sermon on the Mount with a simple but profound statement. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Again, this is an instance where the English translation fails us a little bit. A better translation for the word perfect is actually complete. It's about wholeness, and it's a reference to this biblical concept of shalom. You've been with us before. You've probably heard me talk about shalom. It's this theme that goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation and affects every part of Scripture and really every part of our lives. It's simply abundant goodness in all things and then between all things. And this shalom, this complete wholeness, is God's desire for humanity and for the world that we live in. Jesus is calling us to radical agape love of all people and the uncompromising pursuit of shalom for everyone. This manifests itself in all different ways, right? As Jesus taught us just in this passage, sometimes it looks like nonviolent resistance or praying for those who persecute you or telling the truth in a world full of lies, or reconciling with your neighbor before you go to church, or seeing the image of God in everyone, or using your power to help people who don't have any, or even forgiving the very people who hang you up on a cross. 
Turns out, Andy Stanley was right all along. Love for God really is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by love for others who are nothing like you and who may not even like you. So the next time you come across one of those people, remember that Jesus considers them worth dying for. And if he considers them worth dying for, then who are we to treat them with anything less than love? Remember the words of Jesus' best friend, John, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That we might live through him. That by his spirit, he might be in us and love the world through us. You see, allowing the love of God to work in us and then move through us to humanity is the call of every Christian. It was radical enough to start a revolution in the first century, and I believe it is radical enough to start one in the 21st century too. Our God is love. His love and his love alone will save our world. And y'all, our world badly needs saving right now. So let us, me and you, be a part of the solution. Let us be people who are defined by love, not just for our people, but for everyone. And may we lead the charge on bringing this world into one community, one family, children of God, loving and living together in agape love. That's our prayer. Let's pray it before God right now. God, we thank you for these scriptures. Thank you for the words of Jesus that ring so clearly. I know they rang so clearly on that hillside in the first century, but man, they ring clearly now too. God, I pray. I pray that you would make us people of love. That as you transform us to look more and more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, that we would do the command that Jesus gave We would love one another as you, through Christ, have loved us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.